Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we do thank you for the way that you relate personally to each one of us. Lord, I thank you for the way that in each generation you do a new work, as Doug referred to, and in each time you bring out both the old and the new. You recombine them in ways that are mysterious and wonderful. In every age and every season, that you relate perfectly to your creations. And Lord, that uh, your words are as relevant to us at this moment as they were when you were speaking them to people standing in your presence almost 2,000 years ago. And Lord, when they were as much a part of your nature before you'd even spoken the words to bring our world into existence. And so, Lord, we praise you this morning. We ask that you would speak through your word and directly to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would remove all else out of the way and that we would hear from you. And I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It was kind of Rick to say a bunch of things about us. Um, my name is Mark Schleif. I'm, I've been here in Beijing almost eight years now with my wife, Angie. And um, three of our four children, the oldest was already a freshman in, had just finished her freshman year of college when we came here, and she has spent many years here, ended up coming back this way, meeting her husband here, having our first grandchild here, and then is actually moving back to Beijing next, uh, this next month. And so uh, we will, though we will be going away to whatever God has, we will definitely be coming back, <laughs> at least for visits. And so um, we, this has been a wonderful place. Something that's been on my heart, the Lord has taught me a lot during the last few years, in, 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 and He's been teaching this over my lifetime. He's modeled it for me and my parents, but it's just something about the way that we relate to each other. You know, I can think back on my, my early relationships. I grew up in um, the country now called Zimbabwe. At the time, it was Rhodesia. And when I was younger, I was living on a, a remote mission station called Sasami Mission Station in Chief Nemangwe's district near Gokwe. And, um, and the only other kids on the mission station that were my age and that we played with were my younger sister of two and a half, two and a half years younger and then the pastor, African pastor's kids, he had a son and a daughter that were approximately the same as our ages. So uh, they, were, they were our good friends. But as is usual, my sister and I in our relationships often got into arguments. That may be unusual for you, but that was very usual for us. And we would get into arguments. And being the older one, having the advantage of years and a very logical mind, I, I could construct very good arguments against her. I could, I could bring my facts, I could bring reason, I could piece them together perfectly, and I would present them to her in, in, in just as kind and gentle a way as I'm speaking to you now, I'm sure. And, and her rebuttal was a killer. Uh-uh. 
She just absolutely refused to see the wisdom that I had, had laid out or anything else. And her, her, her response was just, nope, I don't believe that. And that was the matter closed for her, much to my, to my frustration many, many, many times. We need to communicate in a way that can be received. And we need to be in relationships that are mutual, flowing back and forth, because this is what God has called us to. One of the most interesting things, it's great in God's timing that Doug talked about being, uh, he is at the tail end of generation, uh, I guess the Gen Xers, I'm kind of fall into that, gen, that generation, though I'm at the other end of it, uh, from Doug, but uh, the, as we go from generation to generation, there are a lot of ideas that are hard to communicate, but overall, all of us fit into this definition that's called postmodern, postmodern, so I wanted to bring a few observations about who we are as postmodern people. And I'm going to be depending on the slides to come up because I don't have it on my notes here. So as postmodern people, we are, we tend, we, uh, the one for, we connect to truth more experientially by our experience than by logical arguments. So my sister was on the forefront of this wave here, but more by experience than by logical arguments. Another thing, we tend to think of ourselves more in community rather than as individuals. And I come from a country that prides itself on, oh, we're individuals, but boy, we act like a community. And, and you can see that in our daily lives. We're, even when we try to dress in an avant-garde fashion or be hipsters or other things, sometimes we're trying to do it in the same way that other people are, are doing it. And so we tend to think in community, and this is important to an understanding of how to, to relate to each other. And so another aspect of, of how we are is we value authenticity over theory. I want to know exactly who you are. I want you to open yourself up to me. I want you to have experienced it and seen what the problems are rather than give me all your ideas about how it will work when you haven't tried it yourself. We also, as postmodern people, understand struggle more than naive certainty. So if it's something that you've gone through, and really this is true of relationships, we don't identify with people by their accomplishments. If I come and tell you about my accomplishments, it's just one more reason for you to feel bad about yourself, say, oh, I could never be like that, or that's not my experience. There are many ways that, that talking about what we've done or what our grand ideas are don't connect us, but if I come talk to you about how I struggle in sharing my faith with other people in a way that doesn't come across again in those logical arguments, but is more in a way that comes in quietly and loving them and in, in being part of their day-to-day -day lives and letting that faith or naturally live out. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. If I talk to you about how I, I hurt for my kids and the struggles that they're facing and the questions they have about their own faith. And many of us in small groups and other things have come together and talked about how we have this child or that child who are just struggling with what they believe. They're struggling with how to accept and interact with their friends' struggles as well. And so we can understand struggle and pain and failure 
in each other. In fact, it's the holes in us through which God communicates his perfection. It's the authenticity and the struggle that comes across. We also, as postmodern people, resist definition. So if you've already started ignoring these slides and said, that's not me, at least I got that one right, okay? We, we don't like other people to tell us who we are. We define it for ourselves. Another truth about that is uh, we are in process, and we will be different in 10 or 20 years. And if you're a hipster, you're already different, and you resist anyone else catching up to you, that's okay. I never understood that process completely, but that's, that's okay. I love you in the love of the Lord. Um, we are in process, and even what we try to do, and there's going to be some things today I try to define for you that we have to be careful in getting too hard in our definitions. There are truths that stand forever, the truths of God's Word, and then there are things in practical application that change little by little as our culture changes or based on the experiences of the person with whom we're speaking and our own life experiences. I do not believe everything today in the same way or from the same perspective that I did a month or a year ago and much much differently than 10 years ago or 20 years ago. The theological conversations I had with my dad growing up, and he was honoring to those, really bear little bearing to where I would stand in, in, in those same things today. Not because I was wrong then and I'm right now, maybe I was right then and I'm wrong now, but more because there is an organic process by which God develops us through our experiences, through the truths of life, to get a richer understanding of how He's made us, how He's made others, and how His Word applies to us. God's Word is always relevant. He's the Creator. We're His creations. So we're going to look a little bit about how He instructs us to live with each other in relationship. And a good place to start would be when somebody asks Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? Good place to start if a lot of us think God is a God who gives lots of commandments. So what are the two greatest ones? In Matthew 22, 35 through 40, one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, just before we go on with that, there, this was a series of questions they had been asking him. They had asked him about, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They would ask, okay, if a woman is married to a guy and he dies and then his, she, by Jewish tradition, then marries his brother and that guy dies and there's seven brothers who all have a dangerous lifestyle or something because they all die before the woman, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And they asked him that because they didn't believe in a resurrection. He said, first, you misunderstand the nature of things in the next life, but also as to a resurrection, do you not know that God talks about himself as the God of the living, not the dead? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he had answered this series of questions, and a Pharisee comes as the final test and says, okay, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your minds, quoting from Deuteronomy. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he adds to it. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What do we see here? 
we see two statements that are basically about relationship. First, our vertical relationship to the Lord, and then connected to it, our horizontal relationship to other people. In the passage that was read earlier from Romans 13, 8 through 10, we see Paul also explaining these two commandments really sum up the, the Ten Commandments. If you look in Exodus 20, the commandments, the first four, have no other gods before me, have no idols, revere the Lord's name, keep it holy, keep the Sabbath. All of those have to do with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then as Paul explains in the passage, the others, honoring your parents, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not giving false testimony, not coveting, and any other commandments regarding relationships are all summed up in loving the neighbor as yourself. In doing this, we fulfill the law. So if we're going to see how God wants us to live today, this is a place to start. The second hinges on the first. I cannot love my neighbor as myself if one, myself is my first love. The definition of sin is that I want to put myself in the place that God rightly deserves. I want to put myself as the object of that first commandment and say, I want to love myself with all my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength. And we're not made for that. I was at the men's retreat briefly yesterday, and they, you, they were having a great discussions, great food. It was really a good time of sharing. And, and one of the things that um, we were just talking about, how these these, we, we relate God's words to each other. And we were talking about the place that God has in our lives and the place that we have underneath it. And one of the things that Chris Watkins said is that we seek our self-interest. But what we don't realize is if we seek God's interest, that's the greatest thing for our self-interest. Because we're made for God to be above and us to be underneath. And when we fit within that relationship, everything we're made for comes together. And so that's a key. And we're going to center on the second commandment today, but we cannot avoid the first because it's the entire source of power and strength and everything else for the second. The love relationship with the Lord. If we love ourselves first, there's no room for anyone else. But when we love the Lord, His power, His love that's poured into us is the love that then pours out into others. And so... The other part of that is we cannot love someone else as we love ourselves if we don't love ourselves. And it's in the relationship with the Lord that we find His acceptance, His love, His understanding. And we're going to look a little bit more about how Jesus explains that so we have a greater understanding of, of why we have some misconceptions sometimes about God's love. It's not a performance that we have to maintain. It's a love that He offers freely to us. There's a diagram here that kind of looks at how we see performance. We kind of see God is way up there, and He gives instructions to me way down here, and then I go out to whoever else is out there, and I relay what I'm supposed to relay. I tell them, you repent, you sinners. I tell them, okay, God loves you. I tell them, these are the things, the way that you should live your life. And we get this idea, and it's very much a performance basis, and we feel if I'm not doing enough of the, the yellow line there of going to talking to other people, God is going to be very displeased with me and not accepting what He's given. But really, in the next slide, it's more God intends a relational model. 
And that is the relationship flows, a relationship goes two ways. And so as we live in relationship with God, you notice he mentions loving him. As we live in relationship with God, that same love then flows back and forth with those around us. And it is also important for us to realize we don't tell people things, we live with people. They tell us, we tell them. If we look at Jesus' words in commissioning his disciples to go out in Matthew chapter 28, he says this, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and any of these, there's some of these references I'm going to give I won't read through, but I welcome you to, to, to jot them down and look at them later to, for more information. But he says in this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always the very end of the age. You see the relationship in that? He says, authority has been given to me, so I'm giving it to you. He doesn't say, go out and preach the gospel, though that is a part of what it is. He says, go out and make disciples. That is telling them truth, living truth. A disciple lives with the one who's discipling them, and so that their life becomes an imitation of and a reflection of the other. And the teacher is affected by the disciple and the disciple by the teacher. And as Jesus said, you will all be able to do the same things I did. The whole intention of discipling is that the disciple comes to the same place. The teacher is not above the disciple, but that as we share Christ with others, they mature and they multiply as they go and make other disciples. He also says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see God's own relationship, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, and I am with you always. Again, God is always in that relationship. So the next slide, what we're hoping will happen, what we're praying will happen, is that they make that new connection with God, and then they're the person in the center. That as each person comes to an understanding. Okay. We're at least 15 minutes in, and now here is, I'm about to introduce the title of this message. This could provoke fear. Um, The title of this message is, Love by God, Loving People. So to just reassure you and give you an idea where we're still going, um, here's what we're going to do. Josh, if you show me that that next slide. How people are brought into God's kingdom. Ways to show authentic love to hurting people. And thresholds to be crossed on the way. I'm just going to kind of get you started in areas, but this is one of those areas where Angie and I have found great help in how to make relationships with those around us. And so I want to talk, refer very briefly to Jesus' parable in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. And it says this. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soul produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. This is what the process 
of God's Word working in someone's life, drawing them to the kingdom, is like? It's, it's a couple of things. It's mysterious. We don't always know how it's working. We can't see like God can into someone's heart. And so we don't know exactly how quickly or slowly that process is going to happen. We have also an organic nature to this. There are deliberate steps to be followed. You see, there's a farmer who he scatters seed. Along the way, there's things he's had to do. He's had to till the ground beforehand. He scatters the seed. He may apply some nutrients to it. He may apply some irrigation to it. Some of it's provided by God just in the rain and the other things that are there. But he has no control over the seed. The seed sprouts and grows as God has made it to grow. And in someone's life, the same happens as faith begins to take root and to grow and as they make their response to God. This is the, the challenge for us is that we sometimes think my message is to go out and just share God's word with people. And so we begin to feel a guilt when I haven't shared this with my friend already. Yes, it's our responsibility. We're to share God's word in the what we say and what we do and the way our thinking is reflected to them. But we have to understand it's a process that God knows and we don't. And so as we, as we enter into a relationship with them, we're committing to relationship, not results. We're committing to relationship, not results. Because it is organic. It involves us. So how did Jesus interact with this mysterious organic process of people's faith? Well, here's four examples, and these are some of the, I'm just going to speak briefly about the, the details of these, but I think we always have to look at Jesus and see him. I think we should go back time and time again. I think this summer, what I want to spend time doing is reading through the Gospels, because we look at Jesus to understand God. Jesus came to explain him. It, last time I spoke was speaking on the value of God's word and how Jesus explained it in Matthew 9, 9 through 13, traitors and sinners. He had just called Matthew, the tax collector, to be his disciple. And he went to a party at Matthew's house. Matthew's friends came. Matthew's friends were tax collectors who were considered traitors by many of the other Jews. There were also sinners. And it says in Scripture, with the quotes around it, sinners. How do you know if somebody's a sinner? Well, we're all sinners. But when you get the privilege of having quotes around it, that means that people know and see what your sin is. Whether it's loose morality, whether it's you're in a profession, prostitution, stripping, I don't know, that people would say, oh, that's definitely sin. That person is a sinner. And we tend to take and we relate to people by labels. What Jesus turned around and said, I come not, I come as a physician. People have needs, they're sick. Those are the very people I want to be around. Those are the people I want to minister to. He didn't look at them in definitions of their sin, he looked at them as people and in relationship. He, he illustrated this in the case in Luke 8 40 through 50. A fearful dad and a sick woman, Jairus, a synagogue official, had come to Jesus. He was desperate. He'd asked him to come heal his daughter who was on the point of death. But along the way, something happened. There was a woman with a need. She'd had internal bleeding for years. And in the Jewish system of, of laws, 
She was unable to go to worship because she was considered unclean because of this internal bleeding. She could never, she could never get over, and, and there, was a, there was a set-aside periods like after a woman's period or times, things like that, and so there were times of uncleanness. Well, she could never be ceremonially clean. And she'd gone to doctors and spent all her money and had no healing. And she thought, if I could just touch, I know he's busy, he's on his way. If I could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. God in his great mercy healed her immediately. She had what she wanted and needed, partly. Jesus was on his way to another desperate need, and yet he stops and says, who touched me? And the people go, there's everybody's touching you. It's like, it's like, like line one on, at 8 o'clock in the morning. You, you, you can't move for people around you. And, and, and they probably didn't say that. But that's, I mean, that's, he, he said, someone touched me and I felt power go out of me. Who was it? And this woman fearfully falls before him and says, Lord, I touched you. Jesus knows she needs two kinds of healing. She needs physical healing. She's been a social outcast for years. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go and be well. And she goes and she can present herself and she can rejoin society. He needed to acknowledge her. That's relationship. Mark chapter 1, 40 through 42 is a leper who comes desperately to Jesus and says, Lord, if you're willing, would you make me clean? And Jesus who's already proven he can heal from a distance without even seeing anyone, turns and touches this untouchable person and says, I am willing, be well. And finally, a well-known story of a woman of very loose morality. She'd been married five times, now was living with someone who was not her husband. She comes to the well outside the Samaritan town of Sychar to get water, and finds this Jewish rabbi sitting there, and wonder of wonders, he speaks to her. And Jews wouldn't speak to Samaritans, and he asks her for a drink. And then he gets her curiosity going, and says, if you really knew who I am, you'd ask me for a drink. And she says, because I'd give you living water. That never ends. And she says, tell me more. She gets curious, and he says, well, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. And non-judgmentally, he says, you've had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your husband. He shows he knows her heart without ending the conversation. He shows he sees her and not her sin. And so as we take this example of Jesus, how do we apply it in our lives? And so I wanted just to give you a a reference to a, a little book that our, youth, our former youth minister, John Sorrell, once spoke on this, and it was life-changing for me. Just a way of looking at people. This is a little book called, by Don Everts and, Don, and Doug Shop called I Once Was Lost. The subtitle, What Postmodern Skeptics Taught Us About Their Path to Jesus. They work with uh, InterVarsity, which is one of several really good organizations that work with uh, students on campuses. And... They looked at thousands and thousands of cases of people who'd come to believe from our postmodern generation and asked them what was their path to faith. And they said they recognized five basic thresholds 
that people have to cross in entering the kingdom of heaven. And so I want to present those to you. Now, these, these take place in different ways in different people's lives. This is not a prescription. And you may see someone end up at a threshold and never pass it. For all you do to love them and care for them, they may not make that decision to pass. But we're going to see these five thresholds. The first and foremost, and this is the one I want to explore just for a couple of minutes this morning, is trusting a Christian. I want to explain the others too. Trusting a Christian, establishing a relationship of trust. Next, once they trust someone, they can become curious about Jesus Christ and move from complacency to curiosity. But curiosity isn't enough. There has to be a point where someone is willing to open up to personal change. Probably the hardest threshold to cross. Even when we cross there, though, there is a time of needing to be deliberately seeking after God. And finally, someone can seek and seek and seek, but there has to be a final decision to enter the kingdom. And, it's, and again, if it, there's, there's, there's much more on this. I'm not going to unpackage this morning for the sake of time, but I do want to talk about how much, when we heard this, looking at that very first one, where do you begin trusting a Christian? Change the way that we saw relationships with those around us. We had a neighbor who was very involved in, who, who is sincerely seeking after God through Baha'i. And so she has a reverence for Jesus, but a very different understanding of, of who he is in the place of the universe. But a, but a very nice, very sweet person. And so we saw our responsibility as being in relationship with her. We have gotten to meet many of her friends. Angie's on one of her WeChat groups. She has moved to another city in, in China in, in counseling, and, and yet we still have communication. We hear from her from time to time. We felt like with this friend, we crossed this threshold. I don't know where threshold two, three, four, and five are in her life. But we have this relationship that allows us to continue to interact with her. We've shared what we believe. Angie read, uh, we, we had the honor of attending her wedding. And she asked Angie to read a scripture from, from 1 Corinthians 13 about what is love, you know, as part of that, that um, ceremony. God knows her days. He knows exactly where he's taking this friend, and he knows who he's going to bring into her life. So what we saw was that our part was, we don't know which part of this mysterious process we are. The watering, the planting seeds, the, but the trusting a believer is the most important thing that we can do. And so what I want to encourage you as you explore that, there are ways that we tend to respond when someone doesn't trust us. Some of those responses or just come from our flesh and from our human nature. Then I want to give you a counterpoint for each of those. These are some of the main ways that I can see myself in the column on the left. I can see examples of where I've done every one of these. And what's on, what's on the left are our human reactions to when someone doesn't trust us. On the right are kingdom habits to substitute for those. One of the first things we want to do when someone doesn't trust us, maybe they attack Maybe this is your child. Maybe this is your sibling. Maybe this is your parent. 
I would say for probably 80% of us or more in the room, we can think of someone that falls into one of those three categories. That when they attack the things we believe, we want to defend. We want to explain. We want to enter into something that's almost a combative relationship. But one of the things we have to do is be patient and take it to the Lord and to pray. One of the things we want to do is bruise. And that doesn't mean bruise the other people. That means in ourselves. I get hurt. I get hurt when my child says things that offend everything I've done for them. Everything I believe. The values. When my parent says, you're just, just ridiculous. This is nonsense. It's, why would you expect me to believe this thing? My temptation is to bruise. But instead, what I need to do is learn. Learn where that pain is coming from. Learn what has happened in their experience that's entering into further relationship. Another thing we say, that person's lost. They are never going to do this. I'm just going to avoid them. Instead, we follow the example of Jesus Christ. We go to them and we bond. It's very easy to say, how dare this heathen partying, hedonistic, pot-smoking, junkie, dare to speak down to me like that? How dare those sinners? How dare those people who are cheating on their marriages? How dare those people who are, who are just wasting their lives? How dare those people who, who have just lost their business because of their inactions? How dare they speak back to me about what's truth? Or just looking at someone and seeing their sin instead of their heart. It's easy to judge, and what we have to do instead is to affirm that mother that strips on the weekends, very immoral, but has good parenting skills for the small child she's struggling to raise on her own. Enter into relationship at that point. The person who has a different religion but is earnestly seeking for God, affirm their desire to know more about the one we know and be patient with them in the process as you reveal more of that through your life. Affirm them. Now, there's some pitfalls to avoid. Avoid relativism. Don't say all religions are the same. Protect the uniqueness of Christ. Don't bait and switch. Everybody hates that. Be with them, but don't sin. Don't go with them into situations which compromise your character and integrity breaking the law and committing sin yourself. Find other ways you can connect. And don't walk unwisely into temptation. If you're alcoholic, don't, don't go with your friend to witness to them in a bar. Don't put yourself into situations even that if they're not sin, may harm you spiritually. And the final thing, and this is the biggest temptation for me, as you can see it was true since I was a kid, is to argue Instead of arguing, instead of presenting facts, theories, welcome them into your life. Welcome the people they associate with. Welcome their friends to become your friends. You may have to associate with a lot of sinners, and they're associating with one too. And so, just to close, and I apologize in the time, but the, as we look at a how to see, do I really trust someone? Does someone trust me? 
Here's an inventory of questions just to ask. First, have they ever called me when they had a problem? Have they ever called me when I had a problem? But you had to respond to that with your own question, have I ever called them for help in anything? Sometimes it's so easy to get, oh, I have a mission towards this person. No, I have a relationship, and that means it goes both ways. If I want them to ask me for help, I ask them for help. So the same, have they ever been real with me when they're angry or sad? I have to ask myself, do I hide my honest emotions or moods from them, or do I let them see my authentic self? Have they ever asked me for advice? Do I accept that they have insights and perspectives which could help me? And the last two questions, do we ever just have fun together? I think Jesus had a lot of fun with sinners. So maybe we should too. When do I feel most connected with them? And what are we doing then? Because that's the place that we build relationship. If you have that one particular person who came to mind, that one that you bring before the Father time and time again, praying that they would understand, praying for God to love them, to love them through others, to love them through you. God gave a verse to my family a long time ago. When I see my own kids, the things they're wrestling with now and the things that they will wrestle with maybe in the future that are unknown to me at this time. In Isaiah 59, 21, Jesus says, uh, God says this, As for them, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. We take those we love, we entrust them to the Lord, and we love them in relationship. So I encourage you, let the monkey of their salvation be off your back and back on God's back where it belongs. It's mysterious. It's organic. But it's done through relationship. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the way you continue to show us your love so that we can love others. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.